Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us out with this podcast. They give us the room to record in as well as the equipment to record on. We really appreciate working with them. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting service and rate us and review us as well. It really helps other people find this show. And if you have any suggestions, go ahead and send them to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on the show, U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. How did that go? You know, Sherrod often is talked about as this authentic kind of guy, and I think that's going to come through on this podcast because he definitely wasn't trying to polish himself for an interview in any way. He was... Uh, you know, arguably a little grumpy. You're going to hear him banging on the table quite a bit throughout the uh, podcast because he's very animated. And we so. love that as sound editors. Yes, yeah, so great. if you hear a, that's what you're going to hear probably throughout this podcast just a little bit, just uh, just to give everyone a warning. But he was also very kind of aloof almost whenever we asked him questions. Um, I, I don't know if he was just, you know, either relaxed or whatever that day or if he, I, I don't have an answer for it. I don't know why. But regardless of you know, what he was feeling that day. We did want to have him on because, you know, he's Sherrod Brown. He's been around here for however many years, almost 40 years at this point. He's a U.S. senator. He's been a congressman. He's been secretary of state. He's been a House, uh, Ohio House member. And, you know, despite, you know, cutting through some of the conversation, he did have a lot of interesting things to say, especially about, you know, politics in this day and age. The Sherrod Brown you see on television is the Sherrod Brown you meet in person. I've interviewed him three times, and he always talks about how he tries to extend courtesy or respect to people uh, who he meets. And I think that's true uh, to an extent. He always asks me where I'm from. Um, you know, he always seems interested to get to know the reporters who are covering uh, his campaign. Uh, and the one thing that we always talk about with Sherrod Brown is he is always on message. Uh, he always can turn around any sort of conversation back to his point. Uh, I think he's very media savvy and he's, I don't know, he's gruff. Like he's, he's not a polished politician in the traditional sense. And I think that's why he has broad appeal, I I guess, in Ohio, because uh, you feel like you're sitting down and maybe having a beer with him. The media gets in his nerves sometimes, you know, for a variety of reasons. And so maybe I wasn't there, but I'm just guessing maybe what comes through is a little bit more of that as opposed to maybe just sort of like who Sherrod Brown is, you know, talking to just your average person and whatnot. With that, let's go ahead and listen to the interview that Mary and I did with Sherrod Brown. Sherrod, thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to it for the conversation today. Thanks. All right. So before we get into your political career, we kind of wanted to run through some of your background. Uh, Born and raised in Mansfield, Uh, your father was a doctor and you graduated from Yale in 1974. Went to Johnny Appleseed Junior High. You can't leave that part out. Okay. (laughs) One question I have about this time is, why did you decide to get a degree in Russian studies? Um, I took a course my freshman year, and in those days, I think people, at least some, thought that a liberal arts degree and kind of anything would prepare you for the future. Uh, And I uh, took a course my freshman year with a Soviet defector who um, gone to Yugoslavia and ended up in 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 the United States, and I was um, sort of taken by his... It, it, it just the, the, the kinds of things he talked about in, in world history and world geography and the political world. And I think it, I mean, it, obviously our relationship with the Soviet Union then was, was sort of the, the, the almost all things international 
um, sort of devolved around our relationship with the Soviet Union. And I, I didn't know if I'd ever do that for a living, work on issues like that, but it was intriguing enough to do that. Did the Eastern European population up in Cleveland have anything to do um, with I, it? I was always um, interested in sort of, it's uh, a very good question. I was interested in immigration and in the, you know, the diversity of particularly Northeast Ohio. I mean, there's there is, I mean, one of the one of the exciting things about Ohio, and the, one of the reasons an honor to represent it is, is how every city is so different from one another. Cleveland, you know, Cleveland more Central East European, uh, it, in the white population. Columbus more, uh, Columbus is more from all over now. Southern Ohio is more West Virginia. Akron's more Kentucky among the white population again, uh, with each community having 10, 20, 30 percent African American. So. Um, it, it really was, it, it made this all um, come to life better for me, just studying the, the, the major was actually called Russian and East European studies. So I, I certainly was exposed to that part of the world and how so many of them made their journey to this country. Did you start getting politically involved when you were in college? I um, got politically involved in high school. I was um, founded in Mansfield with two high school friends the first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970. It was the first Earth Day nationally, and we did a march in, in Mansfield. And I so, knew so little about anything that after 700 people marched down Park Avenue West and we came to Central Park in Mansfield, none of us had thought to like have speakers lined up or a microphone or anything. So we said, thanks for coming, and that was the end of that. So I learned something then. I worked on, um, I grew up working on our family farm, uh, milking cows and baling hay and all that. Um, but I was interested in politics, who my parents were. We talked about it at dinner at night. My dad... My mom and dad, my dad was born in Mansfield, Ohio. My mom in Mansfield, Georgia. They met at the Mayflower Hotel. My dad was back from uh, overseas. My mom worked for the something called the OSS, which later evolved into the CIA. Um, she wasn't a spook or anything. She was a more or less clerical person there. And then they moved, ended up moving back to Mansfield, Ohio. My mom was a Democrat. My dad was a Republican. My dad... It's maybe the only person in America that voted for Barry Goldwater in 64 and George McGovern in 72. So there, my dad became a Democrat as he was married, as my, as, as he, as they raised children. But, um, I was always interested because of them and because you, you know, you, you, you saw so many things happening in the country in the 1960s and early seventies. Did coming from a home that had, you know, a Democrat as a mom, Republicans, a dad, uh, you're kind of a more, I don't want to say non-traditional Democrat, but less of the quote-unquote establishment Democrat. Did that kind of upbringing uh, sort of... I don't know. I, I, my, mom always, um, my mom always taught me that you, um, that you respect people regardless of their station in life. Um, I always called, uh, I, you know, would, would, if somebody uses a title... If somebody calls me senator, I ask them their last name and call them generally, if unless I know them and we talk first names. But my mother taught me that, especially with people that, I mean, it, it, it's Connie, my wife's parents' mother taught her. Um, it's how you treat people whom you can mistreat that really is the measure of a person. And I see some of my Senate colleagues who don't treat their staffs very well. I will mention no names here. I see people throughout like that. I also see people who treat their staffs with respect and treat the woman who cleans your your hotel room or the person who serves you dinner, um, I think how you treat them tells you a lot about your view of humankind and 
what kind of elected official you'll be. You mentioned sort of how staffers and everybody, or politicians, I guess, rather, treat their staffers. You left into politics pretty early at about 23 years old, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was when you were first elected. Yeah. And, uh, you know, served in the Ohio House in the 1970s. We've seen a lot of scandal regarding how, you know, uh, sexual harassment regarding some of the Ohio House members. I'm curious, what was it sort of like serving in the 1970s in the House? Did you see any of that? In the 1970s, there were were a few women legislators. There were... From Cleveland, there was Jenny Avenny and Francine Panahaw. Um, on the Democratic side, I think the Donna Pope, but she left soon after the Republican side. Uh, so there weren't many women legislators. There were, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure things went on in those days in offices that um, would not go on today. I think that's likely. But I also think that the State House today, um, there's more scandal in the State House today than any time I've seen. I mean, you have a you have a one-party control in Columbus where the Speaker of the House uh, uh, story breaks one day, he resigns the next, and then presumably the FBI is looking at it. You have a you have a, a, a handful of really, really rich people that are giving hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars to Republican politicians um, and uh, stealing money. I mean, it sure looks like theft in many ways. Um, from the public schools for these for-profit, uh, these for-profit online charters, and m- money is lost, and students um, students are betrayed, and that to me is the worst kind of scandal. I, I have people tell me that have been around even longer than I have that think this is a this is the worst scandal and political scandal in Ohio history. I not that, I mean I, I don't see the media covering it the way that I think they should because I've never seen scandal like this. I mean I. I think that, um, and, and it's the reason when I look at, you look at ECOT and you look at um, the speaker scandal on payday lending, uh, you, and you realize that Ohio ranks near the bottom in infant mortality or near the top, depending on how perverse you look at it. Perversely, you look at it near the bottom on some of the worst opioid problems, some of the worst underfunding of education, underfunding of public health. There's a reason for that, and the reason for that is that the state government is too many people in state government have been on the take for too many years, and uh, you know the the newspapers continue to endorse the same old tired people for office that have contributed to that scandal. I'm interested why you think the newspapers aren't covering the scandal. Like I, you know, particularly when I talk about Ecot and Rosenberger, uh, really without the media, no, you know that oh, scandal I, wouldn't media, have bubbled absolutely. up. No, I I say they're not. I I, I say I will say it this way. Um, I mean, the job of the media, the cliche, but is true, is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And in a good free press does that, you will never hear me talk like Donald Trump does, that the media, that, the, that, the, that any of you are the enemies of the people. I think that because of management decisions, you don't have enough reporters in Columbus, you don't have enough reporters in Washington, you don't have the wherewithal um, because it starts at the top in terms of allocation of resources to root out scandals as much as you should. Um, I appreciate your attempts now, but I also know that most of Ohio still doesn't know much about ECOT and most of Ohio, your efforts, your collective efforts notwithstanding, don't know enough about um, the for-profit charter school scandal. They kind of vaguely know something, but I think that's because there is, you know, there's now one reporter from Cleveland.com slash Cleveland Plain Dealer um, in Washington now, a full-time Washington reporter. He used to have two. He took the early buyout. Now there's one. I hope you replace him or eventually with a him or a her. Um, I see what's happened in Columbus and your papers. I think reporters are doing their jobs. I think management isn't because they continue to cut back on 
on protecting the public, and it means rooting out corruption in business and government and uh, in, in all parts of society. We'll touch a little more on the media in just a little bit. I want to get back to some of these questions here. You know, like you said, you started at 23 when you went to the Ohio House of Representatives, became Secretary of State at age 31. After you lost re-election, you became congressman at age 41. I'm curious, do you ever feel like, do you constantly, did you constantly feel like you were the youngest guy in the room every time you were running? Um, I, felt, I felt that initially. Yeah, I mean, I, because I guess I was, I wasn't in Congress, but um, yeah, I mean, but I always thought if you're a female, if you're if you're a person of color, if you're especially young in these jobs, you've got to work harder to prove yourselves because people that just typically are the most powerful in this country are older and whiter and maler than the general population. So you've got to be better. You've got to work harder. Uh, you've got something to prove often. So I, I don't know what I proved, but I think I worked harder. You've got a lot of longevity in politics, and that's led them, some of your critics to label you career politician, whatever. They say it like it's a bad thing. I'm curious for your thoughts on that term. It seems like politics is the only profession, quote-unquote profession, where uh, maybe outside sports where longevity is considered a bad thing. If you pitch like Corey Kluber, longevity is not a bad thing. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't have much comment on that. I know what people say. I know that uh, they're going to say that about—they oh, say that about all kinds of people. I, I, I think because of my experience, we succeeded in pushing back on Trump and stopping him from— um, stopping him from eliminating funding to keep Lake Erie clean. And uh, I can name 20 things that I, we, we got the earned income tax credit expanded in this country. Uh, we got, we preserved the, the um, Affordable Care Act because uh, I and some others uh, had the experience to know how to fight back. So um, I think that um, I, I will always defend that. As we said, you served in a number of bodies, uh, different bodies of government. What's the most dysfunctional body you've ever served in? Probably the most recent because of the changes <laughs> in society. I mean, I, I mean we're, we're in a divided country. I mean, you you know, some group of people um, watches Fox, another group watches something else. Some people read the New York Times and some listen to National Public Radio. It happens the people that read the New York Times and listen to public radio factually are more factually correct than those who watch Fox. But that's just that that is that is not fake news. That is fact. Um, but a um, uh, big swath of people in this country don't see it that way. So, I mean, the, the country's divided, and Congress is divided, and frankly, um, my, my colleagues in the Senate, my Republican colleagues, um, are, are unafraid, or are, are afraid to stand up to Donald Trump and point out when he's not telling the truth, and uh, call that dysfunction, call it whatever you want. Um, but I, I think on, when I look at the Senate, uh, several years or several months there, I mean, sorry, a couple of years ago, a, a guy named Roy Blunt, a U.S. senator from Missouri, a uh, Repub- very conservative Republican, said he and I knew each other when we were secretaries of state of our respective states. And he said one day, he said, I've known Sherrod Brown for 30 years. And he said, we've agreed on exactly five issues. And he kind of laughed. And he said, but all five of them are federal law. So I know how to get things done, partly because I've done it before. But it is if I have an idea on this most recent bill. Um, to protect our national security with Chinese investment in uh, coming into our country. Uh, I teamed up with a Republican from Texas, number two Republican in the Senate, on um, stopping farm subsidies to farmers, to rich farmers for not planting um, and building a safety net. I teamed up with a South Dakota Republican. I team up with Senator Portman on all kinds of issues. So it really is a, it's about finding the right people. I always, I'm working on this pension bill now. I designed 
the, the committee, which was a, came out of a bill that I sponsored, um, to be bipartisan. That's the only way to get things done. Doesn't mean that, that the Senate, I mean, Mitch McConnell has made this Senate more partisan than it's ever been. Um, but I also don't want to romanticize the past. I, I hear senators all the time say, gosh, I wish it was like it was 30 years ago. Well, 30 years ago, everybody looked like me in the Senate. Um, there's nobody that looked like Mary, and there was nobody that had different skin color than the three of us, uh, with maybe one exception in those days. And the Senate couldn't pass a, a, a civil rights bill. So I don't romanticize the past. Oh, the Senate was so great then because they all got along. Well, they might have got along, but they weren't doing the country's business. you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So there's absolutely no way that you got through an interview with Sherrod Brown without talking about Donald Trump, right? Actually, I think he kind of started the interview uh, talking okay. about right. Donald Trump right. really from the get-go. Yeah, we, we know we got into it with him a little more uh, about his time in Washington and what it's been like since Trump's been there and uh, even some of his, you know, comparisons to Trump because he and Trump are pretty simpatico on trade and maybe not as much on anything else. But even even their style a little bit, I guess you could kind of call it this sort of off the cuff, you know, speak the common man's language sort of, uh, you know, political brand and all that. Sherrod Brown's brand of politics is Sherrod Brown. That's something that he's very clear about. I'm going to do me. These are the policies and issues that I care about. I'm not, you know, he's not like a partisan I guess partisan in the traditional sense where he's going to fall along party lines on every single issue and so when we asked him about Trump and trade he he said well you know Donald Trump and I agree on some issues when it comes to trade although you know he he did you know mention you know a caveat in the fact that he doesn't think Trump understands why he has those opinions on trade or how his opinions sort of Anyway, I, I think Sherrod is doubtful as to why Trump believes what he believes. But he talked about how, you know, when he sees an issue, he's going to evaluate it, you know, on its own merits and, and really come up with his de- a, a decision on his own, you know, separate of, you know, any sort of um, a push from, you know, party leaders or whatever. And I think that comes through when, when Sherrod talks about trade. You know, you mentioned Sherrod's brand being... Sherrod, you know, Sherrod's politics being Sherrod, uh, that's actually kind of illuminating in a way because often we think of Sherrod as, oh, his politics is this populist sort of whatever brand, which, well, you know, that's just kind of the way he grew up and the way he thinks. I mean, he's been doing this since he was 23. It's not like, you know, he's been in public office long, you know, for a longer time than he hasn't been in public office. And the only reason he probably hasn't been in public office longer is because he was too young to be in public office at that point. So it, it really has just kind of become, you know, they're, they are one. There's like a Vulcan mind meld now between the on-message Sherrod Brown and just Sherrod Brown in general. It's all just Sherrod at this point. I mean, you'll hear it come through when he's sort of, you know, attacking some of the press a little bit. Not necessarily the press, but attacking, you know, journalism higher-ups. He attacks uh, one of our conservative columnists at Cleveland.com. That's just Sherrod now. He just kind of has lived in the public spotlight for so long now that 
he just kind of does what he wants and does him and you know that's kind of helped them get elected this many times yeah sometimes when you talk to politicians like they have an on button and an off button and like when you're talking to them on the record first story you can you know they sit up you can sort of see a, a difference in the way that they're speaking or you know they're they're speaking really carefully or or thinking you know about you know whatever consultants have told them to say like Sherrod Brown's you know just hanging out you know he's kind of hunched over in a seat just banging on the table, like making his point. Like, I don't think Sherrod Brown, the politician is very different than like the Sherrod Brown you would see, you know, at an Indians game. I think he's, I think, you know, he's mm-hmm. been in politics so long. He's just very uh, authentic and, and you have to give him some credit for that because there are a lot of folks you talk to who um, are a little too carefully crafted. Yeah, I think that something, you know, as we kind of think about things to ask him, we interview him, I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself now, but uh, there is this kind of like outside tension between uh, the fact that Sherrod Brown's generally viewed as one of the most liberal uh, members of the U.S. Senate, and he's trying to get reelected in a state that elected Donald Trump, who almost has this like kind of paleoconservative thing that he is kind of basically, I guess, embodies now. Sherrod generally just kind of rejects that paradigm altogether. And I, I think like, you know, uh, some of the same people that uh, helped elect Donald Trump also helped elect Barack Obama. And so there is like a synergy between all, all that stuff. And I think uh, listening to Sherrod Brown, understanding him is pretty key to understanding the overlap. Yeah. And I mean, we asked him about that in the interview too. And he, you know, completely, like you said, sort of rejected that paradigm of, you know, being super liberal and having that base of, of liberal voters that he has to appeal to, plus trying to appeal to maybe more moderate Democrats or moderate Republicans that he will need in order to win the election. And I don't really see that he views it as a dichotomy. I think he sees it as he's Sherrod Brown and people are going to support him for who he is. Well, and how many times do you, you know, talk to people around the state and they'll say, oh, they're, you know, Republicans or Trump supporters or whatever. And you ask, you know, you might follow up, but what about Sherrod Brown? And it's like, oh, that's Sherrod. He's he's a little different. Yeah, you know? he's like his own category of, of a political party. With that, let's get back to the interview with Sherrod Brown. So we're curious for your thoughts. Do you think the atmosphere in D.C. has changed since Donald Trump has taken office? No, surely it has. I mean, there is. I mean, to have a to have a president of the United States who consistently lies—that's fact. Uh, you've you've shown that with Politifact. You've shown it with a whole host of other kinds of things. Everything from the most obvious, like saying for years the president of the United States wasn't born here, Obama, to my inauguration crowds are the biggest ever to what he's doing right now on this whole Spygate thing. I mean, the president doesn't tell the truth. And there were surely times when Bush didn't, when Bush lied about the Iraq war and a lot of us called him out and a lot of us voted against it as a result. There were times when Obama wasn't exactly accurate or truthful on some things. So that happens with presidents. It doesn't happen every day. It's never happened every day until this president. So, and, and, and the, you, also I, I was talking, I was, I was talking to a, a business executive and two, two things really jumped out. First, he said to me, I don't know of any pr- prominent person in business that would hire a guy like Donald Trump that never takes responsibility, that calls people names, that, that is always trying to, to roil the waters. And the second thing they said is I've never seen an executive that calls people names like that that work for him. I mean, you think about Donald Trump loves to call people names. What adult do you know that does that? So that creates this pretty toxic environment um, that uh, makes him, I mean, I work with him on trade issues when he, I have already worked with him on renegotiation of NAFTA on his tariffs. I agree with him on a number of things like that because to me it's, it's, it's my state, it's not him. 
But I also hear Republican senators grumble all the time. They think he's dishonest. They think he doesn't ever study issues. So he doesn't know depth of any issues. They, they, these are Republican words. They think he's a bigot. I mean, I, I hear those things from Republican senators, none of whom, the, the, who, most of whom are invertebrates. I mean, most of them don't have backbone and stand up to him. And that's, that's, a, that's a tragedy, and they don't. It's a tragedy for our country um, because he has set a tone. Is that what presidents are going to be like in the future, that blame everybody else, never take responsibility, don't tell the truth, uh, call people names, divide the country, and uh, that's unfortunate. And as I said, it's never happened in our nation's history. I hope this isn't a pattern for the future. You mentioned that you've worked with the president on trade. What's it like to work with Donald Trump? What's it like to sit at the negotiating table, as he well, might I, say? I, I, I don't negotiate with him. I have been in. I was in one meeting on trade with a dozen people in the room: Secretary Ross, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, the president, the vice president, six or eight senators, mostly Republicans, a few Democrats, and. Um, I was taken one how little depth he had about trade other than the talking points of I hate NAFTA. And I do too, but I have very specific in-depth reasons for it. I, I'm not sure his is intuitive, and that's not bad. That's okay. But he hasn't taken the time to really learn what to do. My, my discussions are always with, I spoke today with Secretary of Commerce about, about some steel issues, about some auto issues, uh, and about some specific GM, what are we going to do about Lordstown issues? Uh, and, uh, and I speak with Lighthizer, the U.S. trade rep from my wife's hometown of Ashtabula regularly. Um, the, the, the frustrating thing is how they are trying to do one thing and then the president changes his mind and flips it over and then they've got to try to move over and dance and explain away that behavior. So it's difficult. I mean, there's never it's partly difficult because the president doesn't have a base knowledge and philosophy about what he wants to do. I mean, I didn't agree with George Bush on much of anything. I, I hated what he did on the Iraq war. I think it caused immense hardship for ultimately, well, well, caused death among a lot of American soldiers and, and Iraqi civilians and soldiers. It also caused immense hardship for our country overall. Um, but when Bush said something, he usually meant it. He usually had enough knowledge to know what he was doing and not to flip his position you know, three days later with different political situation. And the same with Obama and the same with Clinton. You occupy this sort of interesting place politically where this year you're up for re-election. You'll likely need to uh, convince some of the Trump base to vote for you. But part of your base, too, wants you to be that check on the president. So how do you sort of negotiate? I continue to do job I'm doing. I I am... Um... I mean, I, I, many of the people that voted for Trump have voted for me in the past and will again. I'm working on this pension bill. I speak at a rally of 100, 200, 300 retired Teamsters at rallies around Ohio. Uh, their leaders tell me half of them voted for, um, for Trump, and they tell me 80 or 90 percent or more will vote for me. So um, if, you keep, if, you, if you have people's back, if you know what you stand for, if you fight for the little guy, whether she punches a clock or he works construction or she works in a diner or whether he works in an office, you fight for the little guy, um, you win elections. And I will always do that. That's my commitment. That's, I hope, my reputation. And that's what the fight in me does. I mean, certainly you're, you're not a coastal uh, Democrat. You don't fit that stereotype at all. Do you think the Democratic Party has a problem trying to attract or, or identify with uh, Midwest voters? Well, I think the Republican Party has a has trouble. We never ask it that way. They have trouble on the coast. They have trouble with young voters. They have trouble with people of color. That's a larger number than voters that Democrats might have a problem with. I, I don't. I don't think much about 
bicoastal Democrats, whatever, if that's the, if that's the appellation I think about workers in my state. I don't think about Clinton voters and Trump voters. I think about workers. And, uh, and again, I define workers as pretty much everybody that shows up to work. Uh, I don't think of them as white workers and black workers or Puerto Rican workers or anything else. I think of them as, as families and workers and appealing to them based on, on fighting for the little guy and having, and having their backs. And, um, that's why I will do better as a Democrat, um, this year in communities where, Democrats are not necessarily faring so well now. You're the ranking member of the banking committee. Um, There was a lot of backlash to the big banks uh, after the housing crisis. That seems to sort of died down, I guess. It's not the issue people uh, are talking about today. Is too big to fail still a big issue? Well, the big issue is how Congress, um, I'm not sure what that means, and I'm asked that from time to time. What what concerns me is uh, that, uh, well, let me start with this. My wife and I live in, in Cleveland. Uh, right on the edge of Garfield Heights, south of Slavic Village. Our zip code, 44105, had more foreclosures in the year 2007, and the first, to be precise, the first six months. 2007, we had more foreclosures in that zip code. I didn't live there then. Um, we've lived there five years, but um, than any zip code in the United States of America. And I see the blight that was brought on in large part because of Wall Street, um, Wall Street greed. And uh, it continues to bother a lot of people in this country that Wall Street was neither contrite nor held accountable for that. Uh, and, w- and what bothers me even more is how the Senate Banking Committee, including some in my party, have suffered from a collective amnesia. They have forgotten what Wall Street did. So what happened? Here's, here's the beginning point of that in 2010 or 9, I think 10, when President Obama signed the Dodd-Frank bill that you talked about. Uh, the top lobbyist for the financial services industry in Washington said, now it's halftime, meaning that um, even though they lost that first round, they're going to continue to lobby these agencies to weaken the rules. And the first time they can get a pro-Wall Street majority, which they now have with President Trump, and the White House looks like a retreat for Wall Street executives, frankly. But they have President Trump, they have a, a pro-Wall Street Speaker of the House and a pro-Wall Street leader of the Senate. And they got that Republican majority, and they're going after it. And, and just this past week, President Trump signed a bill that began the unraveling in a significant way of Wall Street. He's of, of, of Dodd-Frank. Um, they want to go after the Consumer Bureau. They're doing it from inside as they put their people in there. When, when virtually, almost virtually every major Trump nominee in any regulation, any regulatory job in the financial services sector comes out of Wall Street or is connected to Wall Street, um, that's their mission. That's their ideology. That's their goal. And you're gonna, you're going to say it. it we're, I'm not alarmed because I don't think we're close to a financial meltdown. But we're putting the blocks in place to do that because Wall Street never gives up. Wall Street greed knows no bounds. Wall Street act. Wall Street lobbying um, never takes a break. Never rests. And we end up with Congress moving in that direction again. During the debate on the Republican tax cut, there was a video, an exchange between you and Senator Hatch, where uh, he, he kind of got a little bit upset, and, and you can see in the video, and uh, you're kind of smirking. Uh, I was not smirking. Okay. Smirk. For the record. <laughs> I think it looked quite like a smirk it, it myself. Looked, it looked like a smirk, but, uh, but do, you, do you enjoy... Uh, the- the, I'm not going to call you guys enemies of the people, no matter how many you <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm just curious. Do you uh, do you enjoy the occasional political fight? No, I, I mean I enjoy good discussion. I thought it was that. I think it, it the purpose of it was that 
they were they were jamming a tax cut through. Overwhelmingly, they went to rich people. Uh, 80% of this tax cut by its seventh year, I believe seventh year, goes to the 1% richest people in the country. It will accelerate jobs moving offshore because it sets up the tax system in a way to reward that. It blows a hole in the federal budget of a trillion dollars, more than that, uh, money that should have gone to infrastructure. Uh, and it sets that, that, that budget deficit now, increased budget deficit. Already Republicans are coming back and saying, got to cut Lake Erie funding, got to cut funding for the Appalachian Regional Commission, got to go after the low energy heating assistance program, which a lot of people in Garfield Heights and Fairview Park need, a lot of senior citizens. It'll go after Lake Erie funding. It goes after, raises the retirement age of Medicare, it could raise the retirement age. All these things they do because of this budget. So yeah, I was not happy. I, I, don't, I didn't enjoy anything about that week because they were changing the bill every day. They were working, we were working late into night when some reporters had left. Um, I don't mind working late. I do mind that they were doing all kinds of things under the, under the guise of darkness. Um, we didn't have a chance to read the bill. Um, it clearly was a, the bill was written mostly in the majority leader's office by a bunch of lobbyists. So I was pretty upset. And I kept saying to Hatch, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? And finally he says, well, I was, I, I, I grew up with the poor, in his words, I grew up with the poor people. And I, um, I don't ever say I'm not for the poor people, whatever he meant by that. But clearly he's forgotten all of that. So I, I, I'm, I'm co-chair of this pension committee with him. I get along with him fine. But I thought he needed to hear over and over and over what he was doing to the country those three days. And I, I would do it again. The other thing, I kept, I kept um, reminding him that we hadn't, re we hadn't um, uh, renewed the children and children's health insurance program. I don't know if it was my constant battering of that chip and reminding him that we hadn't done it, but a month later we got a 10-year extension on the chip bill. So I, I regret nothing from that night. I, I would have done it more or less the same way, the smirk notwithstanding apparently. But um, I think that when members of Congress, when members of Congress go to Washington and do the bidding of the richest people in the country, they deserve to be called out, pure and simple. What do you think realistically, if anything, Congress can get done by the end of the year? Um, I hope we can do flood insurance legislation. I hope we finish our CFIUS bill that, with an economic component, meaning that if the Chinese invest in the United States, if it's a large investment and it would compromise our national security, we stop it. If, we, if it's a large investment and it, it puts American workers out of business because of Chinese subsidies of water and land and energy and, and capital, then we stop it. I welcome investments from overseas. I don't welcome it if it compromises Americans' economic or national security interests. I, I think we'll get that bill done. The, I'm working with Senator Cornyn on and Senator Grassley. Um, I don't know what else we'll do. I, the president kept promising infrastructure. It's done nothing about it, um, fundamentally nothing about it. Uh, I'm hopeful we can get some of it done. I'm curious, who's your favorite senator you've ever worked with? Ever worked with was, well, probably Ted Kennedy, just because it was... Um, I learned from him. I learned, um, I learned you can have dis disagreements on the Senate floor and then not take it personally. I, I remember one time walking out of the Senate and I had a contentious debate on, I don't even remember the issue or the Senator, honestly, this was years ago. And I remember talking to Connie on the way home and I said, I, and we kind of came to this, this construct that it's whom you fight for and what you fight against. I don't, I don't want to fight against Mitch McConnell. I want to fight against what he's doing to the country. 
I don't even want to fight against Ted Cruz, and nobody likes Ted Cruz. But I don't want, I want it to be, even though he's Mary's senator still, probably, she probably still votes in that place. I am a, I am okay. a registered uh, Ohio voter. Okay, okay. So, uh, I mean, I, I, did, I did have the question on this paper, as you can see. <laughs> I wanted to know, does everyone actually hate Ted Cruz? That's good. And, of course, you guys will always be the liberal media because you have Ted Dyden still writing his brilliant insight into everything. Excuse me. Um, why does that guy still have a call? Can you explain that? Not on here. Why don't you hire a reporter in Washington instead of that guy? <laughs> Not on here. Or a half a reporter. Or a third we got to keep All it moving. Right. Okay. All right. Before we get into more serious talks, I have to ask, what is up with Sherrod Brown's voice? Nothing. What's up with your voice, Andrew? Why yeah, do you nothing. talk like that? I mean, it's not nothing I mean, wrong with it. Jeez. Why do you think people are focused on Sherrod Brown's voice? Well, because it's very distinctive. I mean, it sounds like it could be in movie trailers or something like that. It's like the gravelly voice about the apocalypse or whatever. I don't. I don't know. It's it's an interesting voice. I don't. We're not the only ones who pointed it out. I know that. You know, he but he did kind of ask back. He's like, well, "What's up with your voice?" When we asked him about it, <laughs> it's like, "Well, I, I guess so, man." Like, I don't know. My voice kind of sucks now. That I think about it. So. Yeah. So are we? Are we? Is there consensus that Sherrod Brown missed out on an opportunity as a career in a in a movie trailer uh, announcing? I think he's doing just fine being a senator. I guess. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you'd rather be the movie trailer guy or the senator. I guess the movie trailer guy probably lives on in memory a little longer. What if he did a campaign ad? where it was his voice you know and it was like a movie trailer ad we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we pass these ideas along guys if you're listening you know we uh yeah our advice is free but uh so you guys also talked about kind of Sherrod Brown as a national figure and kind of like he's obviously up for re-election right now I guess that's sort of like the elephant in the room right yeah you know for being a politician he really does not like talking politics at all it's just not his thing you know he kind of brushes it to the side whenever you know you ask him a question about it. i mean he does this in gaggles when you talk to him too you know it's kind of like yeah you know i'm not worried about that i'm not worried about that we get him to open up a little bit about 2018 but he plays a little dumb from time to time like oh no you know i, I think he doesn't want to get ahead of himself because this is supposed to be a competitive race but all signs point to it not necessarily being competitive right now but again we're also very very early out yeah and it's kind of like the sort of sports metaphor or whatever when you start thinking about you know the championship then you're going to get killed in the first round or something like that. So you don't take your eye off the ball. Another yeah. sports metaphor there. Yeah. Uh, so did you guys talk about 2020? Uh, we tried to talk about 2020, but that's another topic that Sherrod Brown really doesn't want to talk, you know, about at all. Man, you guys are crushing it. I know. I mean, you know, he's, <laughs> he, that's, that's the thing though, is, is he, he wants to kind of keep it to his, a lot of politicians will want to talk about politics. They want to talk about the campaign trail and whatnot. And, you know, it's, we've had people on here who've talked about how they relish, you know, being on the campaign and the campaign is where the fun is at and all that. And I don't know, man, I don't, I don't get that with Sherrod. I don't think he really likes campaigning, frankly. I think he, I don't think he likes campaigning in the traditional sense. Let's say that, you know, because I think he's always kind of campaigning because he's been doing it for 40 years now. Yeah, I've heard he likes to kind of get out and talk to people yeah. and that kind of thing, but maybe it's like the process stuff. He's yeah. not going to sit and break it down yeah, for you or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's probably a better way to explain it. I think overall, Sherrod Brown doesn't really love talking about even number years. <laughs> well, I guess we'll, uh, we'll 2016, find... 2016, 2018, 2020. We'll, uh, we'll find out in this segment, I guess. I uh, really liked my joke. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's listen to the rest of the interview with Sherrod Brown. So before we jump into back into politics, uh, I have to ask about your distinctive voice. 
I think everybody's kind of curious about it. Is there a reason for it? I don't think it? much of anybody's curious about it, but maybe you are. I'm no, curious. there's a reason for it because I don't. What is there a reason for your voice? I just talk this well, way. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I don't is smoke. It... I'm not sick. About every three years, I have an otolaryngologist jam that thing down my throat and make me gag, and they say there's nothing there. So, what do you want from me? Did it always sound that way? I don't know. I never listen. I just say it. I don't. I don't think it did. I think it's evolved. I really don't know. Ask people that have known. Find out people that have known me longer. Well, so is there video that exists of you without the kind video of video? Video would have to be audio. Oh, audio, okay. whatever. Video wouldn't do it because I'd be like, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I don't. I don't know. I, I think probably my voice has changed, but. My hair color's changed, too. I mean, my everything's changed. Has anyone come up with an accurate—let me ask you this. How would you describe your voice? Um, forthright. <laughs> I don't know. F- five questions about my voice. But I don't smoke, and I'm not sick. I know that. <laughs> Although Connie was at a—I've um, told this many times in public, but Connie and I were at an event once, and I was up front about to speak. People were crowded into a room with no tables and chairs and just staying next to each other. The guy she was staying next to whom she had never met. As I started talking, this guy said, I hate that guy's voice. Connie said, yeah. And he said, man, when he speaks, it sounds like sounds like fingernails on a blackboard. And Connie said, I like his voice. And he said, you like that guy's voice? She said, yeah, I really like it when he wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, I love you, baby. <laughs> so that's really a true story. So anyway. All right, let's get back into politics. So you're running for re-election this year against Jim Renacci. Uh, you know, you started out the race against Josh Mandel, um, you know, I guess way back when. Uh, were there any practical challenges to having to switch an opponent kind of mid-race? No, no practical challenges. I mean, I more for more for them to try to because I um, I mean, I, I you don't want to believe this probably, but I mean, my focus really is on my job. And you don't see much difference between how I do my job and how I do my campaign. And I don't you know, I don't move my positions because it's an election year. I mean, politicians are believe to do that in regularly you don't see that with me i've been i've always been told you know move and do this and blur the differences and i don't run that way i don't act that way i i mean we know more about we know more about jim renacy in his past than we did before he got in the race surely but everybody researches the other candidate but it hadn't really changed much what do you put your odds at um i don't know i don't make predictions and i don't bet on it so mitch mcconnell yeah i put the odds pretty high the indians win the al central though (laughs) Mitch McConnell noticeably left Ohio out of his key Senate races uh, when they when he was asked about it a little earlier this year. Uh, and Renacy, he hasn't been able to raise a, whole, raise a whole lot of money. Are national Republicans starting to look at this state as kind of a lock for you? I have no idea. I was a bit surprised by that. I, I think it's possible McConnell accidentally left my name out because he listed a bunch of states. I, I, don't, I really don't know that. I've not talked to him. We don't talk about such things. Uh, Renacy, he doesn't have to raise money. He just writes checks. I mean, so I... I think they will. I mean, I you know I get an F from the NRA. They'll spend millions of dollars against me as they have in the past. Koch brothers will spend millions. Um, people that don't like labor unions, and that's a whole lot of billionaires in this country, will spend millions against me. Especially you know oil men from Texas will spend lots of money against me. I just I emphasize Texas because that's oh, Mary's hometown. Thank you. It's home thank state. You. In case any of you have forgotten this tell in this <laughs> podcast, um, I don't. Um, I, so I, I I know they'll have more money than I do. They always do, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with having a World Series championship team. Yeah, like you Me have a too. lot to do with playing. Yeah, you both to Cubs. <laughs> yeah, it's very fun. So Demo- Why do I want to continue this interview? <laughs> <laughs> so Democrats are hanging a lot of their hopes on you in 2018, you know, with you at the top of the ticket. Uh, do you think you'll be able to provide some of the coattails for people to ride on and hopefully bring this blue wave, I guess, for well, you guys? I think that people in Ohio are realizing that 
the leaders in this state and state government have betrayed them, that we have these two, these, these bookend scandals of, of electronic, whatever ECOT stands for, the for-profit charter on, online charter schools. And we have this scandal with the Speaker of the House, the first one, at least in my lifetime, maybe the state's history that resigned because of a scandal. I think people are looking for, for a different leadership in Columbus. So I think that we all we all will work together in, in ways that maybe Democrats haven't in the past. So I, I don't know if I provide coattails as much as um, helping with a message and um, running a campaign that's visible that is looking out for each other. You know, Democrats have, um, I guess to put it kindly, been pretty abysmal electorally in this state, except for you. Uh, why, why is that? Why can you win so consistently know. but others know. can't? I don't know. I think we— um, that's a good question. I mean, Obama won here twice. Clinton won here twice. We've won one governor's race out of the last seven or eight, not since 1986. Um, I don't know. I think this, I really do think this year is different. I think we have a very good state ticket. For the first time in my lifetime, I believe, we have a candidate in all 99 state rep districts and all 17, I believe, Senate districts and all 16 congressional districts and not just placeholders but real candidates who have strong feelings I've seen things in, in rural counties in small town Ohio um, that I've never seen before in terms of enthusiasm uh, to change the course of the direction of this country. So that makes me optimistic. So you're the state's top elected Democrat, as we've said. But unlike in other states that have a, a significant figure at the head of the party, you don't seem to be kind of the public face. And I'm wondering, is there a reason you haven't tried to craft the Ohio Democratic Party more in your image to sort of, you know, bolster your I, ranks? I, I, I work in Washington three days a week. I'm here the other four. Uh, I'm not in the state capitol. I don't run the party. I don't think people want their – I don't think people want an elected official running the party. I, I appreciate David Pepper. I support him. I think he's done a very good job. Um, pointing out the corruption in state government and pointing out the democratic alternatives to that corrupt the corruption of charters for-profit charter schools and the in the payday lending and the speaker's resignation and, and and keeping people's focus on job growth i mean ohio is spite of talk out of columbus ohio is um is behind the national average in job growth the state simply hasn't done its job on public schools on public health on opioids on on, um, on, on life expectancy in terms of infant mortality and all those things. And, uh, the, you know, it's not up to me to run the party. It's up to me to help, and I will do that. But I don't think the, the voters or, frankly, the state's Democrats want the guy that works three days a week in Washington running the party. Your daughter, Liz Brown, is a, a Columbus City Councilwoman. Uh, what advice did you have for her when she entered politics? Um, I didn't have much. I, her first advice was, you don't want me to be part of this campaign, and she didn't. She wanted to do it on her own, with the exception of two events I went to, one up here to help her and then one in Columbus. I, I did not campaign with her. I wanted her to, to prove it. It's a Columbus elects people at large. There were four openings, um, eight people running for four openings. She finished second to a, a long, longer term, longer time city councilman. She... Um, I was proud of her in that she, when she ran, she talked about poverty um, in her first race, which almost no politicians do because the lowest income people don't vote in very high numbers, but to her it was a moral question. Uh, she also refused an appointment to city council for the last 20 years. I, be I believe maybe except for one and maybe every case, the new council people in Columbus are appointed first and then they run. My daughter did not want to be appointed. She wanted to run in part because 
her father is a statewide official. She wanted to show she could do it on her own. I, I, what, what advice I gave beyond that, I mean, she was around me, and we talk about this stuff a lot. So I, I didn't say set out and do A, B, C, and D. I mean, I think she saw things I had done, and some of them she liked, and some of them she probably didn't. Our, our philosophies are very similar. I mean, she, she's in politics because she fights for the little guy. Again, the little guy, whether she punches a clock or works weights tables or whether he works construction. So she, um, she's, I'm just so proud of her. So I have my other daughter who, our other two daughters, one is in Providence who is working with low-income kids and our other daughter in Columbus is, um, is, a, is an attorney for legal services where she doesn't make much money for a, a well-educated lawyer, but she um, fights for people that don't have much of a voice and uh, immigrant families who've, who Donald Trump seems to think he should pick on. One thing we wanted to... We wanted you to clear up for us. How seriously were you considered for Hillary Clinton's running mate? I went through a five-week process. I think I was, people internally told me I was for sure second or third, but I don't really know that. You're consistently listed as a possible 2020 presidential candidate, and I'm curious, which parts of Iowa and New Hampshire are you most looking forward to visiting? <laughs> That's very funny. I, I, I'm consistently listed as that, but never by me. I have no interest. You have no interest in running? No interest. Why don't you have any interest in running? I don't, I, I think that to want to be president, you've got to really, really, really want to be president. There's a, there's a Vermont senator many years ago, a Republican from Vermont, who looked around the Senate and saw all these men in those days that wanted to be president or thought they'd be a good president or looked in the mirror and saw a president. He said the only cure for the presidential virus in the U.S. Senate is embalming fluid. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really want to be that. Who do you think will run in 2020? Um, that's more question to Senate of who won't. Um, I don't know. There's a, there's, I mean, you know all the names of people that want to. And I, I do think that people that want to run for, the, for president sometimes spend a little much too much time looking over their shoulder thinking about Iowa and New Hampshire. And that's not, that's not the way I want to represent this state. So you say you don't want to run for president, but you did go through the. I did. I did. And I, I didn't. I, at first, I almost said no. And yeah. then I, Connie and I talked about it and said, go through the process. And when you when you are offered the chance to I mean they, they they i think they started off with eight or ten and they narrowed it probably to five that went through the whole process and then the final two or three that spent an hour and a half with with the, the prospective nominee was secretary clinton um when you get that close you start wanting it more human nature and i i was a little surprised at that because at the beginning i should i do this should i do this and um, I love this job. And I, I actually said to Secretary Clinton, um, my last interview with her, last hour and a half, and I said, you know what I'd really like to do? And she said, what? I said, I'd, I'd like you to put me on the ticket. And then um, we go through the campaign, and you put me on a bus between Pittsburgh and Madison, Wisconsin. I go to Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa, West Virginia, uh, uh, Indiana. We couldn't win Illinois. We'd win either way. Wisconsin. And then we'd win the election. I'd call you up in December and say, Madam, uh, Madam President-elect, I changed your mind. I'll get somebody else. I want to go back to the Senate. I mean, I, I said that to her, and she laughed because I, I love what I'm doing in the Senate. I don't know if I would have loved vice president, but I think if, if the presidential candidate asks, you probably pretty much have to do it. Do you think you'd consider being someone else's running mate? I'm not, I don't consider that. I don't know who's going to be the nominee, so I don't, I've got more important things to think about than that. So one thing I wanted to pick your brain about before you go, because I know you're in a rush, is you don't like the term Rust Belt which is often used to describe this kind of area. And I'm, why don't you like the term Rust Belt? Because it demeans who we are and diminishes our work. I mean, I, I know what manufacturing looks like. Uh, we have the, you know, we have the large, we have the uh, largest, we make V8 in this state. We make lots of cars. We have the largest yogurt manufacturer in North America. We make 
all kinds of things in Ohio. We make solar panels more than any other city, Toledo, than in the country. Um, we are the leading polymer manufacturer in Summit, Ken Akron. Um, we have all kinds of small machine shops in places like Mansfield. And I don't, um, I, I just think that saying that, um, people that write Rust Belt look down on us and they, um, that's their problem. But I, manufacturing is, I have a friend of mine that worked in the White House once said that everybody wants, to, no, no, everybody in this country wants there to be more manufacturing but nobody wants their kid to do it. Well, they're wrong um, because I think it's become, there, there are so many opportunities. And I'll, I'll close with this on that, on that is that um, we have set up for about five years now, this year we're setting up 20 manufacturing camps working with the Ohio Association, Ohio Manufacturing Association working with local businesses to expose eighth graders a week at a time. We're setting up 20 of these this summer. This will be about our, we will have done 80 or 90 of these over five or six years, um, where kids for a week at that age are exposed to manufacturing. They go out to plants, they have people come in and talk to them. They see things being made. And I get calls from parents all the time that say, you know, my daughter, she didn't really want it. She didn't like school, she didn't want to do anything. She wants to be an engineer now, or she wants to be a welder, or she wants to work in manufacturing. So um, it's, it's, it, it's said, it's usually said with some disdain, um, by people that think they're better than that, and I frankly just don't buy it. So we all know you're a huge baseball fan and uh, that you hate the Yankees probably more than anything in the world. Correct. Reds, I Red know. Sox are getting close, though, because they're really almost as obnoxious as Yankee fans. I want to know, though, in a life-or-death situation, who's your favorite Yankee player? Um, the one that just struck out against the Indians with the bases loaded. That'd be the best answer. <laughs> How about historically? Historically, um, I just I can name hundreds of Yankee players. I just can't <laughs> think of one that I didn't, frankly, dislike. I I, I don't want to. I know there's some things I'm going to say that I won't. I just won't. So <laughs> they show up in opposition ads if I do. <laughs> All right. That was a nice try, though. Yeah. I think I may think about that. I might email you that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate Enjoyed it. it. Thanks. Thank Good you. to see you. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Mary. Thank